This is Alpha Geek Radio. Um, and we have a great group of authors joining us this morning. Thank you, everybody, for bailing on the parade and coming and hanging out with us. Um, so I'm gonna let I'm gonna let the authors take it over. And I'm a moderator. Okay. Just to let you know, I'm an astrophysicist, not an author. <laughs> <laughs> so you're I've officially passed the baton to okay. you. <laughs> just just to lay the ground rules out. Astrophysicist, not author. Um, so so I'm Dr. Pamela Gay. I am host of the Astronomy Cast podcast, and uh, with me are three fine gentlemen who do write and use the power of podcasting to help bring their narrative voice out to the world. And I'm going to let each of them introduce themselves, and I'm going to start with you, sir. You made it sound like what I do is so much more interesting than what I think, where I just run my mouth constantly. <laughs> uh, my name's Bobby Nash. I, as you might guess, I'm an author. Um, here's a few of the few of the books I've written. Um, I also co-host a podcast called the Earth Station One Podcast. Uh, it's a, we have a whole network of shows, but um, I'm a co-host of ESO. It's a weekly pop culture show. We do interviews, and we pick a main topic each week, and we just kind of run with it. Uh, I'm Mike Stackpole. I've, I've written over 50 novels. A bunch of the Star Wars novels hit the New York Times bestseller list. Um, and I've been, you know, involved in podcasting since pretty much the dawn of time. Uh, for a long time, I was well. I still am the co-host of Dragon. Okay. Finch, though. When did you start podcasting, sir? Uh, a year before DragonCon had a podcasting track. Okay. The dawn of time. Yes. No, I understand this, but I launched my podcast February fourteenth, uh, two thousand and five. Uh, mine was probably in May of 2005. Okay. When I first started doing stuff. Okay, so I'm 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 the sun wasn't quite as high up when I started. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Yeah, the, the rocks were still cooling for both of us. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, and I co-hosted both the the Dragon Page uh, podcast where we've done a lot of interviews with authors, um, uh, and um, uh, just uh, do a lot of interviews when books come out. So I sort of see it from all the different sides. Uh, I'm Jay Smith. I, I guess when I started podcasting, the dinosaurs were finally on the earth roaming around 2006. <laughs> and uh, from there, I, I, my trade is an author. I'm a master's program at uh, Seton Hill University, and I became a podcaster just because writing's a lonely process. I became an audio drama writer. I remember the author of HG World, which is a zombie end of the world type audio drama series, which spun off several series, including The Diary of Joe Woodbine, which is now available as a novel. So. We, we've seen through the evolution of podcasting, authors using it in a variety of ways, from uh, bringing their works forward, doing their own nar narration, doing full cast narration, uh, doing a let's sit around and talk about what we do with uh, the Sigler First junkie panels. Um, it's true. Um, so so how, have the, how have the three of you chosen to try and hopefully get your name out there and get people buying your books using the medium of podcasting? Um, to be honest, I like to sell good actors selling my words for me. Uh, I, I, I'm lucky enough to have some very good actors performing the full cast and for the full-fledged audio drama. And it seems like once I get, once I have people who come to it uh, for the full cast and the, the audio drama fully, they're more interested in reading my prose. So it's much easier to gateway drug for them. At least that's how I, I like to phrase it. 
I think um, when you look at any sort of advertising, uh, sampling is probably the only tried, true method to get somebody uh, to be aware of your product. So in giving out samples, whether it's reading the first couple of chapters of your book for free and putting it out there, or uh, you know, in, in doing interviews where you get to talk about the book and the thing that you liked it, the stuff that intrigues listeners will be the thing that gets their eyes, get, raises their awareness. And, and the whole issue of discoverability has been something that the publishing industry has wrestled with forever. And, and it's, it's only become acute now because there are no more bookstores. Um, before, we used to think your books were easily discovered because they were on the shelves. And so using podcasting in, in either doing interviews or in the full cast, and, and, and I'm really excited in the developments in full cast stuff, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit, um, as opposed to just doing readings. Um, uh, it really does raise your profile. You know, anyone that listens to you for, I, I suspect, more than five hours will go ahead and start wanting to collect everything, start wanting to, to support you. And with, with doing the, because I also do you know, interviews and things like that, um, but, but for having our own podcast, even though I, you know, the, we do a weekly show, it's not me every week going, okay, here's my new book, buy this, buy that. You know, I'm getting people to know me through, through that as well. And then at the end of it, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, by the way, I have a new book out that's coming yeah. out next month. Or, you know, so, so I found that that helps, too, when people are getting to know me. And they're, they're, they, you know, if they like the show, they're, they're willing to go and support. And then we also do other, you know, I do interviews. And a lot like what the guys were saying, you know, different things to just get the word out about the actual books. Now, one of the, the neat things that as a listener I've seen evolve over the years is uh, going from single voice reading, which, which I love and is one of the things I love to do, um, to full cast. And there are so many strategies, and it's so difficult, and the audio and the music. How do you, as authors trying to get your work out there, make the transformation from an individual at a keyboard to learning all of the tech needed and, and what inspired you to make that leap from written page to Final Cut Pro? Um, it, the process, it, it, there's a huge learning curve and I come up through collaborative media. I was in uh, film and theater growing up so there's a natural tendency for me to want to put on a show, and I want to share that experience with as many different people as possible. So for me, it was a natural progression of saying, it's very hard for me to go out and say, here's a piece of pulp, buy it. Even if I could pitch it as well as I could, there's still a chance that people aren't going to pick it up because there's a thousand other things. Even in the, the, the age of digital media, I'm competing with so many people. But I give them five minutes of good audio, something's going to appeal to somebody. And I can better compete with, with any audio drama that's out there or any, any uh, spoken word if I just give them that, that taste. And I can go through a whole book worth of material and find that 30 seconds that's going to grab somebody or hit the largest cross-section of my market. And that, to me, is worth the time investing. And uh, I just surround myself with good people. We use Reaper as opposed to Final Cut. And uh, I have a guy who's brilliant with it. He can turn somebody's really lousy audio into professional sound quality, and it sounds like they did it in a studio. So utilizing that talent, you find the right people, just like a writer finds the right editor and the right publisher. You find the right talent and the right skill, and you can get it to the head of the market. Yeah, I also think it's, it's uh, for me, and this was a, one of those things, again, from the dawn of time of podcasting, uh, there was always the question of, can you monetize this? Can you actually yeah. make money at it? And, uh, and what I really like, looking at the, the model of something like uh, Welcome to Night Vale, 
which has been yeah, which has been which has been really really successful in finding pockets of money in different places. While the episodes are free in their continuity, they've started doing live shows, and they they came to Arizona, and I got to see one of those, which was great fun. And then they record those, and they will sell those. They have merchandise, and they make sure to make sure that that merchandise is is limited runs, so you buy it now or it goes away forever. Um, they turned around and they've got a publishing deal now for books, so they're licensing material for other people to produce. And what they've shown is, is two things. One, the whole podcasting audio drama market has matured to the point where you can actually make money off of this, uh, which is a which is is really cool. That means that we can go out and we can say, hey, look, you know, if we can get investors enough to pay for actors to buy some art to do these different things, we've actually got a business model that can return stuff to us. Um, and I think secondarily, it shows that especially Americans are willing to listen to the full cast audio drama, which. Ten years ago, that was really in question. Yeah. I mean, in the UK, because of the BBC, that culture was very much alive. Mm -hmm. But in the United States, it had it had gone away. I mean, this, it started in the United States back in the uh, 30s, and it had gone away by the 70s. And and now, apparently, it's quite vibrant because you see a lot of full cast audio productions being done. Um, and, you know, very successful now. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, I don't I don't do a lot of those. At that, you know, where I, I actually handle the behind the scenes stuff, uh, we're doing the stuff with our with our podcast. You know, we I've got, there's someone that does that, so I show up, I do my parts, and they, you know, magically, there's a podcast. <laughs> it's great um, to have tech, isn't it? Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, we we like to joke. Uh, Mike Faber, he's the head of our, our our the ESO network, and we like to joke that we have a Faber. That's that's our system, the Faber system. Um, we do it. He handles the hard part. And yeah. We, uh, so yeah. I have a Preston. Yeah, so it, it helps. It helps to be able to just show up, do do the thing, and then you know let somebody else deal with the deal with the headaches. So, so I, I know some authors, uh, Nathan Lowell comes to mind in particular, have managed to harness the power of social media and podcasting and the various distribution networks to bypass mainstream publishing. Do you think that it's going to become a a um, long tail with books as well where it's not going to be just, I know you have a lot of mainstream publications, I have to admit I don't know your publishers mm -hmm. are, are you going to start eventually seeing New York Times best-selling books that didn't go through a mainstream publishing house? The way the New York Times bestseller list is set up the, because they pull their data from bookstores, mm -hmm. it is highly okay. unlikely that you're going to see um, independently published work making it onto those lists. Um, you know, the, the, literally, New York Times bestseller list does not track digital. Um, so there's no, and, and, and most indies are, are, are heavily digital. Mm -hmm. uh, while print on demand makes it possible for us to, to turn out books like this in small lots that look great. And, and are the equivalent of anything New York kicks out. Um, the fact is, is that it would, the price per unit is prohibitive for us to send it into distribution. So unless you're a big publisher that's got distribution in whatever bookstores are left, um, that's just not going to happen right now. So are um, we obsoleting the New York Times bestselling list? Um, 
Yeah, pretty much. I hope so. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, no, no, to, to, to the credit of the Times, they have adapted down through the years. They have adjusted their list and they and they have made changes and and digital may be a change that they have to uh, that they have to look at um, whether or not you're going to see New York publishers the the big five publishers now um, turning around and doing more with audio um, doing the full cast productions providing more value to to turn that product out that's an interesting question not because of, of whether or not these things are profitable but because the way that division has always worked within those publishers, it was never it was never the front runner. Yeah. It did not pull and distribute sales out to books. It was ancillary sales. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they're not comfortable in their business model with how that works. Could there be a shift? I mean, you know, Night Vale may be, because they did get a publishing deal, Night Vale may be the, the camel's nose in the tent. You know there may be a shift now uh, on that on that side, but you know that will it, publishing is notoriously slow. They move in geological times. So. <laughs> so, so when we all got started, the dawn of time before man doing our podcasts, um, it it often was individuals in the closet talking to their clothing, recording without echo, and and audio got released on patio books, and this was before iTunes, and the amount of change that we've seen in our field. Um, I'm starting to see some of the original patio books coming up now on audible.com and we have WhisperSync technology and Amazon Prime is starting to give you access to audiobooks. How are you as authors keeping up with this changing technology and leveraging it into sales? Uh, I'm a slow learner in terms of modern tech. Uh, if someone in the podcasting community says this is successful for me, I will jump on it and try and learn as quickly as I can. Um, my focus is trying to get as many loyal readers to do a lot of that work for me, to try and if they like the work, that's that's majority of the battle right there. And then someone will inevitably come to me and say, "Hey, you might want to try this because I don't have the platform you're offering." And you know, it's just a, for me, it's a, a, almost a luddite type approach to it. I want the I want the book to be good, and I want to have a solid reader base, and I would I want to reach out from there to have people tell me what the next step is. Beyond your own websites. What distribution mechanisms are you using? I'm using Kindle, and I'm using uh, uh, the Chronic Rift Network, which has its own RSS feed, and uh, we're on iTunes through an RSS feed. And beyond that, it's just it, it, it's marketing through social media to get get it out there. Um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just I, I I agree with most of that. That's very similar. Uh, yeah, we we well we have, with the ESO network, anything I want to do, I can easily post through their, through our network. But also, you know, get things on iTunes. Um, I work with a lot of small and mid-level publishers, and almost immediately when we're, we're talking about books, the, they are already talking audio while we're still working on the books. Yeah. So it's become, yeah, where it used to be something, if the book's successful, we'll talk about an audio. Now it's actually part of the, the beginning of the process because when we release the book, we can go ahead and release the first yes. few chapters. We can get it out there. We can let people get a, get a sense of the book, and hopefully they will, you know, as opposed to waiting till the book's out. And if the book's successful, then we'll do an audio. So yeah, so there's a lot of I've I've noticed a lot of growth in in the the smaller publishers. I just wanted to ask you guys a question. Do you guys sell your books directly, like DRM free from your website? Yeah, yeah. Oh sure. Yeah. Look, a couple a couple of different things. I mean, one. Um, to make this work uh, monetarily, 
you have to look at some of the merchandising things. Um, if you're releasing episodes of, of, if you're releasing your book chapter by chapter for free, uh, and it's available for free, there are a few people that would pay money to get it uh, if they don't realize that it's available for free. Realistically, however, uh, you might well uh, take that first book out of circulation, leave it out of circulation for three months, then move it over to audio, uh, to Audible or to a, a for-pay site or a package of your own that you sell from your own website. Um, in terms of digital publishing, uh, there are other possibilities. You can do the electronic book and you can bundle with it the audio. And if you're selling it yourself, you know, the, the e-book is $5. With the audio, it's 15 um, All of a sudden, you know, this becomes that $15, anything under 20 bucks is not really prohibitive if somebody's really into it. And the idea that they can get two for this thing, you know, it's, it's the cost of a download, uh, which is negligible to us, but that's real money that, that turns back. I'll add that uh, our business model, if you can call it a business model, is to start with a full cast audio drama where you couldn't possibly afford, unless you had a big pot of money, to compensate the actors. But after five years of, of producing material for free and building that audience, we were able to start with patio novels. We could pay one actor, but you already had that built-in audience. Right. So by the time you had you got to that first book, you had people hungry for content. As long as the content was good, then that money funds the full cast drama, and then it ends up funding the print book. Yeah. So, so a lot of the um, nonfiction, I guess podcasts are starting to turn to Patreon as a funding model where you have people saying we are going to be a patron of your show, we'll pay X, you'll produce Y, go. Um, is that a model or is there something similar that can be used to channel surreal dramas? That's actually, um, uh, that model or similar model has been used with fiction. Um, Tracy Hickman and his wife Laura uh, did a book, uh, I think they've done several books this way, where they sold a subscription to the book as they were writing it. And if you bought that subscription, you were guaranteed to get a limited edition hardcover of the book at the end of the thing. Mm -hmm. But you were seeing the book coming out uh, chapter by chapter. And there was a forum where you could comment on things and they would interact. And so they literally, in that subscription model, were selling this sort of brainstorming with the authors as the novel is going uh, kind of model. And it was, it was successful. You know, the subscriptions paid for the amount of time it took to write the novel, and then they've got that product uh, and, and those things. And you see, uh, you know, Patreon is, is, is doing it on the installment basis. Uh, you certainly see a lot of Kickstarter projects with books uh, where you have that same sort of thing, where they're paid for up front uh, by, uh, uh, by people who are interested in seeing that, and then the author uh, grinds those out. So those models seem to be, uh, seem to be successful. And podcasting is a good way to to keep keep the, your your investors or your fans involved with the yeah, process. Absolutely. If you're you know if you're you know one of the things I do is I try to talk about not only the pitching the book but the the writing process. Mm -hmm. You know because there are a lot of people that are interested in what really goes on or what. And I found when you talk about the process of the work, people are, get interested because they're like, especially if they're writers themselves, going, oh, I had that same issue. Or, oh, I, you know, you, you said you had this problem. I didn't think, you know, I've heard this. I didn't think real authors had that problem. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> and it's, it, it's, it helps you connect on a more personal level with, with your listeners because they understand that this doesn't happen by magic. Yeah, yeah. A, another one of the shows that came out at the dawn of time was uh, Merle Lafferty's I Should Be Writing. Mm -hmm. 
and she leveraged that into bringing in other authors to talk uh, and musicians to talk about podcasting and she built an audience talking about writing that then went out and bought her books mm-hmm. yeah. is it have have you found that it's almost essential to have these other types of podcasts out there alongside your audio dramas to yeah. help promote? I think it's a cooperative effort. I think the more podcasts you appear on and the more cooperative and the more collaborative you are with other shows, the more supportive they are of you and in turn the audience has free support of your your project. As long as they know what you're about as an author and yeah. they get samples of what you're creating, then yeah, I think you have to network yourself. You have to be part of the larger community in order to be successful that way. Yeah, I, a number of years ago, about four years ago, I released a, um, a superhero noir novel called In Here Years I'm Dead. And I did this as an experiment when I released it. I released it in two versions. One was the $5 basic version where all you got was the novel. The other was the deluxe version where, in addition to the novel, you got an 8,000-word essay about the writing of the novel, you know, all the things that went in, why I made the choices that I did. My assumption, because at that point everybody was saying that two ninety nine was the sweet spot for ebooks. If you sold it for any more, you were a moron. Um, so I was selling for five and then six dollars. My assumption was that for every three or four of the five dollar book, I would sell one of the deluxe book. The fact was, for every four of the deluxe books, I sold one of the basic books. So you know, people were willing to actually put a dollar value, or literally the value of a dollar on that ability to to see what the author was thinking, to to get that background information. So having those ancillary podcasts where you get to talk about the process, where you get to talk about, or just blog posts or anything like that, where you get to show your enthusiasm for the, mm-hmm. for the project um, helps draw people in. Now they want to see, you know, they've yeah. heard some of the background story. It's, it's like reading all the little press releases that come out about a movie. You know, now you got to go see the movie because you just want to, you know, find out how they actually made that work. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I found that it builds an interest. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's an early interest because especially like I'll do shows and people are like, Hey, how's the book coming that you're working on? Because I, I've been seeing you post about this latest, you know, story you're working on. How's that coming? So there is, they've built a genuine interest in, in following it as opposed to just, here's a book. Yeah. You know, they can actually f- feel like they're part of the process, which and, and, I think helps. And going back to something that you said earlier, this is really important to understand when you're doing these podcasts, we can't use the televangelist model, which is 25% content, 75% sales. Because if you do that, if it is, and now a word from our sponsor, buy, 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 you know, for your mm-hmm. love offering of 75 bucks, we will send you this worthless trinket. Um, no, instead, you know, we've got to be giving them lots of content and say, hey, guys, you know, thanks for listening. And by the way, if you want to support this, this is what mm-hmm. you can do. And we offer them those offer them those options, which people are really good about, you know, hitting. They feel both the social obligation and they're engaged and they wanna they wanna help out. And that's been one of the let's face it, we all start out, most of us who are readers started out by having people read to us. You know, we are used to hearing stories told to us. So when you have an author or a full cast telling you that story, you're back in your safe place when mm-hmm. you were five years old, you know, all tucked up in bed, nice and warm, and someone is reading to you. This is really a, a, a very effective message to get inside their head, to be trusted, and then take all their money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it is, you're right, though. It is a very, it's a very delicate balance yeah, because yeah. that, if, if all you do is buy my book, buy my, you ter- people just start ignoring it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it doesn't take much. You have to find a way to, 
you can still say buy my book, but right, then right. here's some interesting content. Oh, by the way, there's a book. Yeah. You know. So, so with technology, we're basically able to give our way, give ourselves away in more and more different ways. And you used the word see, and one of the things audiences want is to see what's in our heads, to see us. And the new Google Hangout on Air, it's not new anymore, it's two or three years old. The Google Hangout on Air technology is something that I've seen a variety of authors using to talk about the fandoms that are closest to them or to do readings. Um, have you started to branch from strictly audio to bringing in these visual technologies as well? Not, not a lot. I've done a couple of the Google Hangouts, um, and, they're in, and they're interesting. It's, it's a good way to, 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 to connect with people. Especially because people can can just pop in and out, you know, and it's and and you know they're there as opposed to like like we're live streaming this and we have no idea how many people are listening, you know. We're, and we could log on. Well, we can log on and find out, but I mean, but you know, it's nice, you know, when you can see people come in, ask the questions, and I think having that and being able to interact, not just us give content, but like get you know have people come in, ask questions, have a little back and forth. I think that really is a good way to it really builds a community yeah. between us and our readers I guess it flies in the face of what I'm doing right now but I prefer to melt into the stuff that I'm creating I prefer to disappear into my writing and allow it to be represented by the, the voice actors um, I feel that they sell it better than I do so I would rather they go out and say how good it is rather than me and try and convince you guys buy my book. But you you get a great voice, so you don't do any parts in your dramas? No, because I have shitty equipment. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm that a writer. I can't afford good equipment. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, so going back to the voice talent and everything else, there, there are so many different ways to find readers. How and by readers in this case I mean people reading your audio out loud and recording what are the strategies that you use to find the voices that go take the voice in your head and turn it into a reality in the recording wow um, there, uh, there's a huge community out there and if you go to the Parsec Awards tomorrow you'll meet majority of the best out there uh, there, the Pendant Audio has a great academy. There are many users group, voiceactors.com, and you'll just find people with a, a wide variety of different voices, and they have samples out there. You can hire voices online, and you can listen to three minutes of different accents. So they're, they're not difficult to find. The, the difficulty is to cultivate a relationship with them so they continue to work with you mm -hmm. through several projects, especially if you have a series. You certainly don't want to change a voice in the middle of a three-part series. But it, it's a, it's it's very fairly simple to find them, but you, it's almost like a director's relationship with an actor on stage or, or doing film. Yeah, I think sometimes I, I've done uh, 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 for um, a couple of podcasts, I've actually read uh, read other people's stories. And that was a case of, of the producer coming to me and saying, look, you know, I you know, I've heard your podcast. I think you'd be great for reading this. Yeah. Would you, you know, would you be interested in doing that? And and it's like, sure, this sounds like fun. You know, rock and roll. Um, I think that uh, uh, so you know, choosing the right voice for the right part, and then asking. Uh, you, you, you can join us on stage. Yeah, we've been waiting for you. We, dear, it started at ten. Yes. You guys got off when on time started. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry.
Sorry to interrupt. Please continue. <laughs> it's, all, it's all yours. We were all talked out. We were just vamping until you got here. Oh, I see. I see. Podcasting. Let's talk about it. So, so we were talking about how we find voice actors, not we, you find voice actors for your various work, and and you actually timed your entrance perfectly because when you started, you did all of your own voice work, and you're now transitioning to hiring voice talent. Mm-hmm. What triggered that transition? Um, we just ran out of time, so we had multiple projects going. We're writing books, and they're in various stages of production. And we did the math, and we're like, I can record these two books, if the podcast and Nocturn- Nocturnal and Pandemic, and if I do that, then we're not going to get the next book done for an additional eight to ten weeks. So instead of spending the time to be in the booth the whole time doing it, we just said, it's time to get someone else in here to do this, and it worked out great. So, so far, it's been fantastic. We were able to focus on what we do, which is making new stories, and uh, Phil Giganti was the, the guy who did the recording, and he knocked it out, did all the work, did all the editing, did everything for us, and just gave us a finished package back. So it was, it was a great experience. So when you did your own recording, did you do your own audio editing? Yeah, when I started out, I did all my own audio recording, all my own editing, took an enormous amount of time, and then eventually we got to the point where I was doing the recording, and then we would pass off the editing to someone else mm-hmm. with a lot of hand-holding to start with until they understood uh, you know, the expectations of the project. And now we just, here you go, and we get the finished project back. So now the only thing that I do is for the Galactic Football League novels, we'll go into the booth, sit down, record the whole thing, and then send it off. That's it. So, so one of the things that, that you said that intrigued me was the amount of time that goes into narration. Um, and the reason it intrigues me, and then the cost of podcasting, is commercial voice talent is about $300 an hour, and you're expected to be able to do a complete novel in two days. I, having done complete novels in the studio as just voice talent, I don't know how they can do it in two days. It depends on the size of the novel, I guess. <laughs> you know, um, Nocturnal was 140,000 words. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, 650-ish pages well, in that ballpark? BBC read speed is um, 10,000 words an hour. Okay. So that's 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 yeah. generally wow. the, the benchmark. Yeah, and, I, and not being a professional voice actor, and it's also my work, I stop a lot. Really? I'll stop, I'll go back, I do corrections as I go. Our production cycle is intended so that when I do the voice acting, that's the final pass-through on the galley. So, because there's so much stuff you catch when you're reading out loud. Yeah. yeah. So, we're, we're, as long as we were reading and finding mistakes, like, why don't we just bake this into the process so that the finished print or ebook is as good as it can be? So, that takes a long time. But, I mean, I've, I've never read somebody else's book. Maybe it goes faster if you read somebody else's book and you're trusting the author instead of arguing with the author on every sentence because the author's <laughs> obviously an idiot and doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah, I know. I, I, an, author, an author friend of mine. Uh, had uh, she retained the production company that uh, publishers had retained to do all of her other audiobooks and uh, she said to do a novel it was about five grand was the total commitment so the voice talent the the editing all the mm-hmm. packaging and stuff like that so you know and again I think that was eighty to hundred thousand words running around there the other thing the other reason we did it was we started putting the books up on ACX audibles yeah. exchange and we started making money at the books and we were able to just do the math. Okay, well, we're going to make X amount on this book, so if we spend $5,000 to record it in X number of months, then we'll get be paid back and we'll start making a profit on it. 
So that made it much more palatable to just pay someone to record it for us and then put it out as a podcast that was never beneficial. But with Amazon, and then it sits in that store digitally forever and ever and just doesn't make as much money as it makes out of the gate, but it keeps on making money. So it's worth it. It's just an investment at this point. So so what's your strategy been on terms of finding voice talent, finding editors and such? Mostly I leave it up to the publishers. Uh, uh, because usually, like I said, most a lot of times it's part of the discussion at the beginning. And and up until recently, I've not really had much say in in the cast, you know, finding 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 the actors, et cetera. And uh, I'm working on a book now where the publisher's actually going, okay, here's what I've got lined up. Tell me your picks. Oh, wow. Who do you hear? And which has been very nice because I can actually listen to it and go, okay, this is close to the voice in my head and. And so, so that has helped. But uh, yeah, for a lot of my stuff, I, it's like I hear it when it comes out, and have no, you know, I, I have no say in the process up to that point. So, uh, but isn't it kind of magic when you hear it? It is, yeah, yeah. There, it's because yeah, because especially when you yeah, there's when someone's putting an inflection, and it's like, or or they're putting a, a certain voice to it, and it's like, wow, yeah, it's 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 a little different than what I it, I pictured, but the right voice. The first one I ever did that was that was recorded as audible. The, the the actor that read it had, had kind of a gravelly voice, but it was a, it was very noirish story, uh-huh. mm-hmm. and so his voice really just added a level to it that wasn't in my head, and just because of his, you know, I I suspect it, I have this mental image of him like smoking cigarettes while he's reading it, <laughs> and yeah, so it, it just worked. So I I I do some voice acting and. I'm always listening to audiobooks, trying to find inspiration and find the the voices that suck me in so that I'm, I don't ever want to come back out. And there's some books that absolutely wreck you. Um, what have been the books that have affected you in terms of listening to them and inspiring you to up your game because you see these masterpieces out there? I- wow. I can't remember the. It was a Stephen King book read by um, Kathy Bates, and it wasn't Misery. But I <laughs> wish I could remember it. But I. I shall Google heard, while you all talk. Oh, I'd heard you know, a hundred, two hundred audiobooks by that point, and when I heard that, I realized that the vast majority of these people were absolutely phoning it in. Like it sounds pretty good, mm-hmm. but they're not. They're not making craft out of this, and Kathy Bates just ripped the doors off the thing. So, yeah. which is the other reason I was so hesitant. To start using other uh, narrators way back when, it's like most of the audiobooks I heard, it was people not necessarily speed reading, but they really weren't putting in the craft. And maybe I was listening to the wrong stuff. But I'm like, I don't. I want someone who's going to take the time and tell that story the way it's supposed to be told. And back in the day, the only one who knows how it's supposed to be told is me because I wrote it. So, well, and there are some that there are some that you can tell are just reading it, and there are some that are acting it. There you yeah. go. Yeah. And, and and it does make a difference. There's an uh, an actor Rob Iblis who did the unabridged um, Lord of the Rings trilogy. Also did the Hobbit, and brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I started listening to Fellowship of the Ring um, uh, when I was on a drive from Phoenix to um, to Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is seven hours through a wasteland. And I was not there. I was just in Middle Earth, you know. Thank God for a highway, you know, because it was just straight on, and it was just fantastic. And even to the point of, of doing all the voice acting, but even singing the various songs, it was brilliant. The the book was was Desperation. Desperation, okay. I think for me, Harlan Ellison reading Repent Harlequin said the Tic Tac Man and a Boy and His Dog 
when I first heard that, I was in high school, and it just blew me away. I didn't know who Harlan Ellison was at the time, but yeah, I had to read everything he put out. You know, another author who was really good, uh, read both his own stuff and then read some um, uh, other authors' things, was Roger Zelazny. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Brilliant voice, and when he would do readings, I mean, it was just absolutely magical. So. And then Stephen Moore reading uh, Life of the Universe and everything. I could. Stephen Moore's voice is just amazing. I'll say my my favorite one right now is Stephen Pacey, who's the guy. I think I have his name right. Is the guy with the eye patch from Three Hundred, and he does the uh, Joe Abercrombie First Law trilogy. And that dude's money. That's uh, even you don't even have to like the story. You can just listen to him read it. And I like the story too. So. So. Full cast versus single narrator is they're two entirely different things. How do you make the choice to do one or the other? Money. <laughs> um, <laughs> our overall budget's not that high. Uh, it really depends on the story. If it's a big picture, if, I mean, if we're talking about a cinematic scope, I would prefer to do full cast just to, to maximize the experience. Yeah. If it's a more intimate story, uh, the Diary of Jill Woodbine is about a girl and her personal uh, viewpoint of the zombie apocalypse. So it's very, it just would be wasted to have all the extraneous voices because it's all coming through her POV. Mm -hmm. But HD World itself has so many different characters and so many different plots that it, it almost demands having a number of different people to express their POV. Uh, it's time, money, and quality for me. If you can afford to have a studio and have everybody come in and read together, like... Um, What's that zombie zombie podcast that did extremely well? That I'm We're alive. What's that? We're alive. We're alive. We're alive. Brought everybody in the studio, knocked that whole thing out. Uh, if you are having people send in parts from different oh areas God. of the country, mm -hmm. even if they all have pretty good setups, there's a different room tone, and you can the ear can hear the difference. So mm -hmm. that was always a no. And then the other reason was if one of those people missed their deadlines the whole production slows down. So I was always, if I could bring everybody into one room and do it, that'd be one thing. Other than that, I know where I'm supposed to be most of the time. Uh, <laughs> most of the time I'm in the booth on time and I'm working when I don't screw up the schedule. So you know the project's gonna get done if I'm recording it. Or now with one guy, you know it's just, it's totally gonna get done. So it's, and it costs, I can't imagine how much it costs, but it's gotta be a lot. But yeah. wouldn't, wouldn't you get a different energy too when you've got everybody in the same room playing sure. off of each other? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, that for me is the only way I'd want to do a, a, a full cast recording is to have everybody there uh, and, and doing their bits, with the except, some minor exceptions maybe. Um, but uh, I think the other thing for me with the story is if it's multiple viewpoint, uh, then probably having a voice for every viewpoint would be cool. Um, but if it's first person or, or single viewpoint, then just having one voice reading the whole thing um, is fine. It's just like you're sitting in that person's head sort of, listening to their thoughts as they scroll through. Yeah, one, one amazing example of that that will wreck you completely, make sure there's like flowers and puppies for you after you're done listening, is um, Caitlin Kierman's The Drowning Girl that was narrated by Susie Jackson. It's the story of a woman with schizophrenia and it's, it's this heart-wrenching, beautifully broken story and what makes you break is they found this young voice that manages to to carry all of the emotional content while always keeping this youth in her voice 
and finding voice actresses like that. I, I can't imagine how many, it's part of the Neil Gaiman Presents series, and I can't imagine how many narrators he listened to to find this voice. How many do you typically listen to um, before you settle on who's going to do your work? Well, you well, have your publisher. I'm right. so sorry. I, I keep asking questions you can't answer. Well, that's okay. well I, I'm doing it on, this, on the new one. We're doing a, an audio of Ghost Gale. Uh, the first Ghost Scout book, and they're sending me samples. So we, I've listened to like six different people read like the first three chapters. Okay. So, so it is interesting to listen to the different takes, and and how each each uh, narrator is is presenting it. So, so it's it's interesting here, but it's yeah, it's still new. Like that happened within this week. So it's yeah, it's still new for me. Uh, I'm currently working on a full cast. An audio drama with effects and music, and this is after five years of doing the satellite production with the same pitfalls you guys just mentioned. And uh, I picked actors based on the performances of previous actors. Uh, we had to, we had specific roles, and we made made a commitment. It wasn't just a voice; it was what kind of commitment can you make? Can you rehearse with us? Can you get onto Skype? Can you get into a relationship with this other actor? Well, that's the word, wrong phrase. Mm -hmm. uh, can you spend time with this actor and then come up with an approach? If Do you have chemistry, I think, is what yes, you're looking that's, for. that's what I'm going for, yeah. In some cases, there are, there are some relationships, love and hate, that you need to sell. And like you said, satellite production is almost impossible. Mm -hmm. So when you're picking an actor for full cast, you have to know that they are able to, to participate in collaborative media, not just sit in a booth and try and fake it. We went through... I don't know, 10, maybe 10 different people um, for Nocturnal and Pandemic before we found Phil Giganti. And we, I would listen to a bunch of stuff. I would ask other authors for recommendations, guys I, and girls I knew who were kind of the same level I was. And like, who did you get for this? How did you get this? It seems like you were punching above your weight class to get this person. When I listened to it, how did you get them? Came to find out that they're just, the voice actors are just like us. They're all looking for that next paycheck. And if it's a project they like, they're very more than happy to talk to you pretty much, unless they're Kathy Bates. She's probably, maybe she's too high priced. <laughs> but we would have people audition. Give them, here's two pages of copy, record this. And then we would do different things like, well, I already recorded Nocturnal First Draft. You know, listen, give me your impression of this character. And they would try that. Or people would um, say, I'm not going to listen to anything because I want to my own approach to it. Like, okay, that's totally fair. And a lot of them came in and we just, you know, the, all your characters sound the same or they sound too too over the top and I'm taken out of the story because you're overly melodramatic approach. And then we once we found Phil, who's like our guy now, all our books will go to Phil until Phil can't do it, until he's obligated. Then that's the only way we're going to go out and find anybody else. But that's also the business side of it. We've got a great rate from him. He gets everything done. He knocks it out. He meets all his deadlines. He hands, hands us a finished project, even uploads it to Audible for us. So we're like, yeah, he's the, the gold standard. I'm sure, I'm sure like Kathy Bates, too, because I've heard this from voice actors for animation. Sometimes they like doing that because I can go to work in jeans and a T-shirt mm -hmm. and not have to go spend hours in hair and makeup. And, and it's, so they're still acting, but it's a little, it's a little less than having to go to a, a major movie or something. So it, it's nice, a nice little break for them. The only time that I did really any writing for, um, for a full production, I adapted one of my own stories and then was working with a partner to do a, a series of radio plays that we never produced. But when we were doing those, when we were writing them, um, we knew people that we would, in essence, write certain parts for, because we knew this person could easily do this stuff, and we'd talk with them ahead of time, saying, "Look, you know, 
when this comes in, you know, we're gonna there's gonna be a Saturday and, and that's gonna be your day and they were all intrigued and, and you know and, and honored and, and they all had good voices and, and uh but a, you know a lot of times you can in addition to voice actors, you can just talk to people who are in radio or, you know, go to a radio station and find out who they've got as ancillary talent. Uh, and those guys in a lot of cases become very because uh, it's also ego driven. You know, the oh, fact yeah. that they are asked to do this production, uh, you know, is is a big coup for them. So. Mm-hmm. so so one of the random things that I do is narrating planetarium shows and we're often able to bar to borrow NPR studios that aren't in use to use their equipment. Do you ever find ways to borrow steel bag equipment from universities or radio stations? Uh, we, from from our regular podcast, it's it's simple. We just Skype and you know, our editor has all the equipment in his studio. So okay, we borrow and steal everything. <laughs> if one of our actors has a has a studio, we ask where the, where do you live and can you bring people <laughs> over to join you? But and, you know, yeah, we do. It's uh, like like the drummer in a band you know he's got a place (laughs) but what's really cool is that this is still so new to so many people but like like you said they're so willing to step up and donate what they had just to be part of that artistic experience universities in particular think radio no 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 it's it's online but it's audio not really radio anymore but oh wow i've got to be part of that okay sure yeah we'll bring you a thousand dollars worth of work to do for free thanks (laughs) uh we really haven't when we started out, I was literally in my clothes closet with, uh, you know, the old Flower Power iMac and figuring <laughs> out how to hook up microphones to it, and it was a it was a disaster. And I worked for a company that did audio recording, so I would go in and do my podcast at three o'clock in the morning, and uh, it worked great until chapter nine when my boss came in at five thirty for some strange reason and found me in there using all of the equipment. She's like, "Yeah, we're not going to do this anymore." I'm like, "Okay, I like my job." Um, since then, and then when I got so, uh, when I signed with Random House, the first thing I did with the signing, uh, the advance money, was went and bought all really good gear for the recording. And I still use it today, and now it's complete overkill because you for like three, four hundred bucks, you can be totally tricked out. Right. The Zoom H6, and you're done. But I have a lot of stuff now, so I don't have to borrow anything. Yeah, yeah. I think you find that uh, one, there are a lot of people that have got home studios yeah. mm-hmm. that you know, are, whether they're musicians or just people that have been doing audio productions, which they have downtime. So they will make that available to you at, at little or no cost. The other thing, especially community colleges, all have these facilities. You know, so you sign up for a course and you get lab time. You know, they they're not really going to mind. And and you have a pool of other students that you can tap as voice talent. And all of a sudden, you're there. <laughs> That's the best answer I've ever heard. <laughs> Take a class, make an audiobook. Everybody's happy. This, this, this is how we got our audio editor. Is I called up our university's mass comm department. I'm like, do you have anyone who like needs a portfolio? And we started paying basically minimum wage for this kid at the time to edit astronomy cast and. Now it we started in 2006, and he now has a master's degree and works at a commercial studio doing videography, and he won't let anyone else ever edit Astronomy Cast, <laughs> and I don't think he even bills us anymore. So, yeah, it's you never know where the talent's going to come from. Did you want to take questions? Yeah, so I was I was about to say um, I think we're coming up on 10 minutes left, 12 minutes left. Um, what questions do you all have for our panel of 
people who bridge written and recorded media. Nobody wants to go first. <laughs> it's, it's they have to stand up and walk to the mic. Scary. Um, I want to get y'all's thoughts about anthologies. I know that in the history of podcasting, there's been a number of both written and audio anthology series, both that authors have sponsored and also that authors have kind of joined in on. What are your feelings about those in today's climate? Well, um, I'll jump in on that because we've got Bones Are White and Blood Is Red, our two anthology collections. They're all my stories, and they're in the Audible store. And uh, we that was also, I forgot, that was part of our auditioning process was we found the author or the, the readers that we liked, and then we paid them to go do a full short story for us. And we were then able to you know sit down and listen to the finished product and also sell that at the same time. So I think it works out pretty good. They don't sell nearly as well as full-length novels. I mean, it's you know like 20% sales compared to the full-length novels. But they're out there, and once you've made your money back for whatever time you invested into it, they're just going to sit in the Audible store, and somebody somewhere is buying them and listening to them. So it gets more product in, and if it gets you closer to uh, the multiplier effect, which when you go to Amazon and you see somebody has one ebook, you're like, eh, you know, meh, whatever. But then you go somebody else, and you've never heard of either person, but this person has ten books in the auto, in the Amazon store. You're like, wow, they must be good. So it gets more titles in the in the process. Yeah, I would think it would largely depend upon the voice talent, and if they're they're matched up and they're really good for the story. I mean, there there have been and, and still are podcasts which are anthology series where they're getting different people to read different stories, and I've got to believe that they're you know the downloads for any particular episode largely dependent upon that chemistry between material and reader. Mm-hmm. And, and I know with with book with anthology books, it's very similar too, where you can you can have the collection, but you can also break them up and sell them individually at a, at a, at a, at a lower price sometimes, which is a good way to get people to, you know, like somebody will sample a short story mm-hmm. or, an, or a short novella from, from me for a, a dollar yeah. the, if they've never heard of me. They might be willing to listen and download an a inexpensive short story read by a by an actor uh you know to try it just to yeah. see what your voice is like or to try out the actor's voice sure where, where do podcasts like escape pod fit into this landscape i mean that would be an anthology podcast well it, it's um i don't know i feel like that's a different animal because yeah, you're specifically going to hear the short story collections yeah. whereas i think of people have listened to all the stuff I have on uh, Audible, and then they go to the anthologies. I don't think they enjoy them as much because of the changing voice. I think the vast majority of audiobook consumers are people who are commuting, and they just want to kind of yeah. settle in for that drive across the wastelands with their one narrator and get to know that person and all the characters. So I think the shorter stuff, it, it doesn't do as well for us anyways. So, so I can actually help you in part with why it doesn't do as well. Those of us who've been Audible members for forever mm-hmm. um, have subscriptions. And when we're looking to spend our two credits or however each month, we look at the length of the books. Yep. And so it's like this, I've, I've, I've looked at your, you're one of the authors that always pops up for me as recommended. Mm-hmm. And, and I see your anthology and I'm like, it's short. I'm not going to waste one of my two credits on something short. You want more bang for your buck. Yeah. 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 yeah, so so it's all of us who are playing flat rates. We tend to 
go for the most expensive stuff that's in Audible and the longest stuff that's in Audible yeah, with our I, flat rate. I do the same thing with my Audible subscription. So yeah. I hear you. Yes, exactly. My favorite button. That, that's very true. One of our core markets is long haul truckers. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. They, Has been that is the audiobook core market. Yeah. Long haul truckers. They're very vocal too. So <laughs> we came out with something that was less than ninety minutes. They were like, "What the hell?" And then the short stories. They didn't want to do it all because it's fifteen twenty minutes. Forget about it. No. Uh, well, you guys have been talking about uh, Audible a fair bit, and I know, uh, Scott, for a while you weren't on Audible, and mm -hmm. I was wondering about kind of what what happened that made you uh, decide to go for that. And well, that, was, with that. That, that was 10 years, which is a very long time in any corporate structure, and, and they've completely changed since then. So that was back with the founders of the company before <clears throat> before they were bought out. I don't know if the founders are still there, but when I started out, I had Earthcore as a podcast, and I'm like, well, this is all done. I finished all the audio. People seem to like it. I would like to sell it in the Audible store. I want to sell it in the iTunes store. I couldn't because Audible then and still has a monopoly in the iTunes store. Everything you see in the iTunes store is coming from Audible. And so I put it into the um, iTunes store as a like an album, but mm -hmm. turned it, I did all the keywords for books, and Audible found out, I don't know how, but I got sent a cease and desist letter to get your damn audiobook off there. So I'm like, all right, you caught me, copper. So then I talked to him, and I'm like, great, listen, I got this thing, and I understand how ones and zeros work. You know, it doesn't cost you anything. Put it on a server and sell it. They were like, great, and they sent me a standard publishing contract, which was a 12% royalty rate for seven-year contract. And I'm like, you didn't do anything. You didn't make a cover. You didn't edit no human capital has been put on this project at all. You don't get 88% of the sale price. And then they're like, well, that's the offer. And I stomped around and said, screw you. I'll never work with them. <laughs> and then that worked for a while. And then I saw ACX. And ACX has, you know, at the time we got into ACX, is 50-50. We make half, you make half. I'm like, can't really do better than that for this giant marketplace with all of these customers. So that's why we got into it. And we also got out of the audio, the, the shipping business, I call it, yeah. storing these giant files and transferring these giant files and troubleshooting it for customers when they have problems and people who don't understand how to put stuff on their iPod, like added an enormous amount of time to a limited time structure we had. So now Audible does that for us. So we're in the audiobook making business. We're not in the audiobook shipping business. That's why we use them. Earlier you had mentioned that uh, with the, the older publishing model, uh, you'd have to wait to see if a book was successful before there was any decision to, to turn it an audio book. But Scott, you had mentioned that, that nowadays, sometimes it's even part of the editing process where before you've, you've uh, released the book in an in a independent publisher or self-publishing, um, you've already started on the audio book. And you, know, you had mentioned finding, finding uh, corrections that way. Um, I, there's obviously still a cost cost uh, analysis before you have to make the decision to put it out an audiobook but with the new the new models that are um, available for publishing when do you make that decision like you still have to wait to know if it's going to be successful correct not not for us for the stuff that we do empty set entertainment does it's there's going to be an audiobook all the time it's just a question of when can we get someone on the mic to get that done i think most publishers the default mode is yes we're going to put out an audiobook because it doesn't cost very much compared to what you make once you're good with audible i'm at this point 
midlist or high, higher publishers, I'm shocked. Like, what do you mean you don't have an audiobook? And, and this is the thing. Just just so you know, the way traditional publishing contracts break down is they break all the rights out. Yeah. When you're a, when you're a single proprietor owned situation and you control all of that stuff, then you can make those decisions to do everything all at once. But if if I sold a paperback to Bantam, uh, Bantam's audio group has to decide if they want to buy the rights, which they buy the rights from Bantam, mm -hmm. all right? And so they're transferring money in-house. So it's just all this phantom money, some will eventually make its way to me, but the audiobook division wants to show a profit. So all they're gonna do is cherry pick the best things to be able to make the audiobook product from. They don't see it as a marketing as a marketing adjunct, and, and this is the, the tough thing for all of this. You know, what we've been talking about is, is the, really the marketing aspect. What does it get us to have the audio out there? Well, sure, there's the monetary return that comes back, but just the goodwill and the awareness, the visibility that we get by having the podcast out there is something that's impossible to accurately measure, and therefore New York doesn't even try. Because for them, you know, it may just be a rounding error. For us, it can be everything. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, if not for your podcast, you know, chances are, you know, we wouldn't know who you are. Right. You know, so exactly. so this is, you know, so for Scott and, and for other of us, this has been everything. It's a it's a huge boost. Mm -hmm. But those guys don't see it that way and therefore they make decisions with entirely different criteria than we do. The podcast actually I put out five books with Random House. That deal's done. The first three books infected uh, Contagious and Ancestor. They put out audiobooks. It worked out great. And then it came time for Nocturnal and Pandemic, and they were annoyed that I was still giving away the audiobooks for free in the podcast. <laughs> and they could not, again, it's, it's, it's a rounding error for them. They don't understand that, like, this is, people listen to it because it is free, and they won't pay for your product otherwise because they've never heard of me. That's actually what led us to be able to get the rights back from them for those two books, and those are the two books that sell the most for us at Audible. So it's a, it's just, yeah, it's a business decision. And, and even doing podcasts where you're not like giving the story away, but where people are interviewing you or you're, you're doing something just to get the, you're out there. Mm -hmm. I've had people at, at conventions like this come up and go, I love your podcast. I come to check out your, your books. So where they may not have heard of my books without the podcast. So it is a good way to sell yourself first, and then that leads to book sales. So, I mean, it, it, yeah, it's... And I think we have a final question yes, from our Yes, final can, uh, question. Since you're all authors, this is for all of you, what is your inspiration for your work? How do you become inspired? Do you have a process? Do you have a favorite chair? Like... When you're writing, because my husband just wrote a book, and I was fascinated to watch him write. And it's a really hard process. Uh, it was for him. So I'm curious if it, is it something that just comes naturally? Do you kind of, how do you get so the I'm juices gonna give, flowing? I'm going to give the nonfiction perspective before these guys go, because I do write a lot of nonfiction. Uh, I usually find that I end up writing the whole thing in the same place, no matter what work it is. So, like... I, I have a textbook that I'm working on, and if I'm not sitting in my big black chair with all of my references kind of arrayed on the arms and the foot and the floor, um, I feel naked and wrong. But other things, it's like this is going to happen on my home computer, and, and so it's just sort of like the part of my brain dedicated to this work belongs to this place in my house, and I don't know why. That's just the way my brain is broken. 
since I'm, I'm full cast audio, I, I listen to old time radio. I'm, the newest production I'm in is called Hidden Harbor Mysteries, which is 1930s superhero pulp. So I'm listening to a lot of The Shadow, a lot of X minus one, suspense, a lot of the great audio uh, series of the 1930s and 40s. And that's like listening to jazz for me. You sit down and you hear the voice, you hear the rhythm, and then you naturally get into that that feel, and then the words come naturally. Uh, <clears throat> I my whole environment is the computer and headphones. So early, being somewhat itinerant, I drilled myself in it. The writing's got to get done. It doesn't matter where I am. It's got to get done. So it's just playlists and the computer and headphones. And as far as inspiration for wanting to write, it's just a question of remembering to go to the bathroom. Because that's (laughs) always, if I could do anything else, I'd probably do something else. But that's just what I do. Yeah, I, I've got an office at home, so that's that's where the writing gets done. Um, when I do editing, I'll generally go out of the office because uh, I really want to separate the the editor writer environment. Uh, it makes it easier to keep the the editor at bay while I'm uh, while I'm working. You know, in terms of motivation, I mean the the I mean one you know money is money is a great motivator. Uh, you know, wanting to actually keep the house. Uh, oddly enough, uh, uh, but I think the other thing is that. You know, there are times that, that stories or ideas for characters or, or things just begin to pulsate in your brain. And, um, you know, th- there comes a point where it's like, yep, now's the time. Let's sit down and do this. And as you say, you know, remembering to, you know, looking at the clock when you start and it's five hours later and you don't remember any of that mm-hmm. time. But, you know, here's all these words piled up. Yeah. Uh, it, I mean, it's just wonderful. I also have an office in, in the, at home, so I, I write there. Uh, I do when, when the weather's nice. Now I live here, so during the summer, it's it's the, there. Those days are few and far between. But I do like to sometimes go sit outside and write. I have a I have a nice screened-in porch, so I'll take have a little table out there and just to get a little fresh air. But uh, yeah, it's uh, same kind of thing. I, I always make sure before I start working, I, I grab like three or four bottles of water. <laughs> You know, they're on the desk in that way because, yeah, I'm the same way. It's like, you know, I realize I've been here like six hours. Um, and, you know, my best day was I started one morning. I got up really early because I was on a deadline. And deadlines are a great motivator. Um, and I started writing that morning. I was like, ah, I get about five hours in, and then I got other stuff to do. And when I finally looked up, it was dark outside. And I was like, I have no – and I realized – I've not eaten. <laughs> I don't, you know, it's my husband calls this writer's blackout <laughs> because he'll do things like call me for dinner because he loves to cook and I have too much to do. And I'll say, I'll be down in a second. And an hour and a half later, he just sort of abandons food next to me. <laughs> and and I, I have actually a few times gone into the... I know exactly what I need to write for this piece. And and it's usually something short for a magazine. And I'll write it, and I'll send it off, and completely forgot what the hell I wrote. <laughs> and and so it's literally, like, for me, short pieces can be a complete writer's blackout. And it's, it might as well be time stolen from my life, taken over by some other human that then gets me paid. So I think that's our time. Okay. Yeah, I was going to sure, say. Sure, sure. Um, and I have cards up here if anybody would like them from all my websites for both my podcast and my books. But uh, my website is bobbynash.com. Uh, the podcast I'm on is the Earth Station One podcast. Uh, it's a weekly show. You can find us at uh, esopodcast.com.
I'm Dr. Pamela Gay, co-host of AstronomyCast.com, um, and I'm the executive producer of 365 Days of Astronomy, which is a community podcast with hundreds of voices. Uh, I'm Michael A. Stackpole, and you can find my stuff at michaelastackpole.com or on Amazon or pretty much any place else. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I'm Scott Sigler, scottsigler.com, or search for Scott Sigler on iTunes and find almost all of my books for free as serialized podcasts. Search on Audible, Amazon, I'm all over the place. I'm Jay Smith. If you like zombie fiction, you can go to goodmorningsurvivors.com for lots of free content, or Pulp Fiction, it's hiddenharbormysteries.com. Thank you again.